Welcome to Taking the Helm with Lynn McLaughlin. In this ever-changing world, it's essential to prioritize our children's emotional well-being. Lynn can show you how to learn and model healthy emotional habits for your loved ones and become a rock-solid support system for your family. Now, here's your host. Good day, everyone, and thanks for joining us again as we take the helm. I cannot believe it is the middle of August. And a quick recap of last week's guest, Foss Ruggiero. We talked about the tremendous correlation between time spent with your child and your ability to understand what they are thinking and feeling and how important it is for us to explain to our children what anxiety is, what it feels like, and talking about it openly. And I am beyond excited to welcome Ginny Luther. She is with us as our guest today. She's the author of Blue Star Grit, A Mother's Journey of Triumph and Tragedy, Raising a Defiant Child into an Exceptional Leader. Her tremendous knowledge provides creative solutions to many difficult issues facing schools and families today. She's been a loving guidance associate and conscious discipline master instructor and has brought to life the principles of Dr. Becky Bailey's conscious discipline to schools, early childhood centers, and parents. Ginny, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for asking me. I feel honored. Oh, we ha- just there's just so much to jump into. But as we start our conversation, I thought a quote from your book would be perfect. And I have to tell you, I, I read the book in, in a day. I could not put it down. Uh, here's the quote. You either take what has been dealt to you and allow it to make you a better person, or you allow it to tear you down. The choice does not belong to fate. It belongs to you. And you, Ginny, have most certainly lived this in countless ways. I have. And, you know, it's, there's, um, it's, it's a really hard thing to explain, but, but when I, whatever I've been through in most of my life, the first thing I ask myself is, what are my choices? Do you know? I mean, after getting over the initial trauma of all of it, I can really, it's like, what is my choice? Do I want to be a victim for my life because I've been victimized? And that's really the base of what I teach is teaching people that you you, can, you are victimized at times, but you're not a victim. You don't ever have to be a victim through any of it. You know, I, when I listen to you say that, the flood of emotions that you must have been feeling in those times, overwhelming, all-encompassing. How I was in awe, Ginny, of how you moved from that state of, I'll call it shock, because I don't know what else we could call it, into what you just said and saying, okay, I'm not going to be a victim here. I'm going to take charge. Right. I think the part of it is making that choice, but then it's how do you come out of the trauma? And because it is traumatizing, of course, it's traumatizing and it's very shocking and shock can shut down feelings. And I think... The hardest part is accepting the feeling part and actually embracing the feeling part. And that's the grief. So the grief can go to very, very deep levels. When you're grieving, it can look so bad that it scares other people. Do you know what I'm saying? And that that was in my mind a lot. I, I needed a lot of time to grieve alone, but really embrace the feelings almost at a prime level for me to be able to allow them to pass through me. and and also accept them. So when it comes, let it come. And so uh, that was the journey, the second blind side versus the first blind side. (laughs) Uh, Ginny, could you be clear just because most listeners haven't read your book, and I certainly hope they do after listening to this, uh, this episode or this conversation with you, what were your two blind sides? So the first blind, the first blind side was when I was 15, my father, uh, my father took his life 
And um, it was such a shock to me. And he was the connector in my family. So he was the one I was connected to. I was not connected to my mom. And so I felt like I really lost everything. And it really fractured our family. And I didn't know how to deal with the grief. And at the time, it was sweeping it under the rug. And we didn't want anyone to know because we lived in an affluent community. So I had to sort of hide behind sort of in this dark cave, looking out through a keyhole, trying to manage my life without anybody really understanding what was going on for me. So I didn't handle it well. Uh, and the second blind side was uh, my son's murder in 2008, which was also, you know, as a blind side. Um, but I, I handled that with so much more conscious, uh, and with a, such a conscious approach that I really was able to transform my grief into gratitude. Both blind sides, unimaginable to the majority of us that who are listening right now. And how old yes. were you, Ginny, um, when your father took his life? 15, just 15. As a 15 year old, the, what happened? Did I have anything to do with it? That's a natural part, isn't it? Of uh, Do I feel some guilt over this? Do I, do I own the fact that my father took his life? I, I just... I can't it's imagine. It's really hard. And especially I was his little girl. I had three brothers. So I was the one that quote unquote, in my perception, made him happy. And that's the proverbial word. You make me happy. And that's one of the things I teach a lot about is that nobody makes you feel anything. You feel what you feel and you can take ownership of your feeling without feeling responsible for the way someone else feels. So if my father was unhappy, then whose fault was it? Exactly. Right. That's, that's the way you felt. Right. Yes. And I took it out on my mom. I mean, I took all that anger on my mom because I, I didn't have the, the processing of it to be able to know that anything that I know today or was able to apply to my son's murder. So yeah, it was difficult. Uh, but uh, really in the book, which Blue Star Grit does is it focuses on that inability to be so victimized and stuck and move yourself through that so that you can get to a place of grief, to gratitude, because everybody has a story. And trauma is a perception. You know, it really is. And it is an experience and it's unfathomable, as you said, but at the same time, so is a child who, who experiences divorced parents. So is, you know, um, an adult who loses the love of their life because they have an affair. I don't care what it is. It's there's a story for for everybody. And and my hope through the book is to help you to say you can get through these things. You can. It's hard, well, but you can do it. When I, you know, I, when I read about your relationship with your son and the gratitude that you find in the time that you had with him and those moments that you now cherish, you, you know, that takes us to an under, new understanding of of how we can possibly get there. And your book, it's so inspirational in terms of saying, wow, if she could have done this in these two circumstances and other ones, then uh, I can take the first baby step. Yeah. And there's a parenting past aspect of it. There's a self-help aspect of it. There's um, uh, a grief aspect to it. It's, it's, I will say it's not your light summer read. It is definitely intense. And I have there's a lot of people who've said to me, I'm reading it for a second time mm -hmm. because it was that impactful. So you can connect to it. The connection to it is what people say they 
they really make with the book because anybody can identify with the feelings of what goes on. But the thing with the, about my son that was so unique, and this was the purpose of me writing this book, was to leave some kind of legacy for his short life of 24, um, was to really examine the relationship that we had that was so intense. He was such a hard kid. and um, But it was that struggle with him that forced me to grow. And that's the beauty of it is that, you know, you're, you don't own your children and have some responsibility to turn them into some product that you think it should be. It's a twofer. You know, we helped each, we helped grow each other up is what we really did. And that experience through the book was so, um, so meaningful to me. That was the biggest piece of the book was to share, uh, what he what he triggered in me that helped me to look at me and change me so that I could make help him make sense of his world. And we're going to talk a lot more about that. I just want to bring in the context that there was an older son, you had an older son, right? Older than Bart. Okay. So when we talk about family dynamics and the impact of, you know, a challenging, a difficult child, a strong-willed child, however you want to phrase it, has on the uh, on the family and the unit and things that happen on a regular day, the lessons that you give us are just so impactful. So let's start with, you know, how we respond in any given moment. We know it has an impact on a child and, and that mirrors what we show them. They, they model us, they copy us, especially in younger years. Mm -hmm. And, and so our, our, our response always has an impact. It doesn't matter what the relationship with young children, our state, our inner state, however our response is, let's talk about a state, whether it's a stress state, an angry state, a happy state, a calm state, whatever our state is in a moment of a child's upset is going to dictate how open they're going to be to be uh, redirected in, in general. So if my state is calm in an upset child's state, then I am more likely to be able to help that child and the child is more likely to calm because their state depends on my state. Mm -hmm. Most people don't know that about young children. My state dictates their state because they don't have a sense of self until they're about age three. There's no sense of self. Their sense of self comes through you. So that's one thing. And then when they get older, you're, co you're always co-regulating. So just walk into a room, walk into a room of, of a family member's and all of a sudden you're there and you're like, ooh, this feels creepy and wrong. I need to get out of here as fast as I can. Nobody said anything. You just feel it. So yeah. it's that energetic, the 93% of communication that you, you give or receive in a moment that you're not paying attention to. You just know it. And that's what I had to be conscious of dealing with Bart because he could sense the negative intention because we're talking about intention now. If my intention in my mind was this little piece of, you know, what is driving me nuts. <laughs> I don't care if I had a smile on my face. He knew it. knew it. And he would just match the state. He would match that inner intention with me. And then I would get more frustrated and he would get more frustrated until I'm threatening him with a wooden spoon. Oh my. <laughs> oh. Right? Yeah. So uh, that was the shift was 
I had to be on top of me in every second. What is my state? What am I offering to him right now? What is my intention with him right this minute? Where am I? If I'm upset, I need to go calm myself down. And there were many a time that I said to him, I'm too upset to be helpful to you right now. I have got to go calm myself down before I can be helpful to you. And did that help him calm himself down in that moment while you were doing it it as well? Yeah, It helped him to give me the space and also to to understand that I understood him. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I understood what was going on was hard for him, but I needed to work on me first. And um, yes, that was helpful. Sometimes it wasn't. He, when he was a teenager, he was extremely persistent. <laughs> uh, so he would be like a yappy dog at my heels, you know, biting at my heels. But mom, but mom, but mom. And I'm like, I'm going to go calm myself down. Then I'll talk to you. I'm going to go calm myself down. Then I'm going to talk to you. And um, there's nothing wrong with that. There's just nothing wrong with taking total responsibility for your state so that you can be that person you want to be with someone else. And I use this on everybody. I use it with my husband. You know, he used to get really mad and be hurtful. I say, listen, calm yourself down. Then I'll talk to you because right now what's coming out of your mouth isn't helpful and it's not going to come out of my mouth helpful either. I think it applies so, to a lot of contexts. I can, I put my educator yeah. hat on and I, I know when I taught everything from kindergarten and I'm post-secondary now, when I go in and I'm stressed and yeah, it's not going to go well. It's just not. It's exactly yeah. what you said. People pick up on your, call it your vibes, call it whatever, your nonverbal or your verbal, because everything we do has an impact on people around us. That's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Every Yes, you're always co-regulating. You're yeah. energetically co-regulating. This is what connection is. This is what socialization is, is we're first determining things consciously or unconsciously. And those defiant children have the most, they're very brilliant in picking up that energy. Mm -hmm. So you can walk in a room, those defiant children can either have a teacher, they either loved or they're hated. The the kids know, they know who has a positive intention for them. I was in a home last night with a, with a a little, little girl down the street, a neighbor. And um, anyway, I, she's, she's just like Bart. She's this little defiant thing. And really big emotions and very sensitive and a lot of stuff that goes on. As soon as I came in there, I, you know, I did some connection with her. And when I could help her see from her point of view, the world, the parents just looked at me and said, I don't know what you're doing, but she's a different kid. You know, does it come down to, this is, a, this is kind of a crazy, I know now that my daughter's under 25, very intuitive. And and I think that goes with what you're saying. She was the strong-willed child and those kinds of things. No, no real. I mean, you can't compare because they're all very different. But I think if I had known then that she had more of an intuition and so sensed things differently, felt things differently than her brothers did, then we would have raised her differently. Yeah, we, we most of us try to control through manipulation. We try to get kids to behave mm. versus, which is external control yeah. versus in helping them internalize it and holding them accountable. But you can't do that without empathy and you can't, you can't do it without seeing, without empathy. You have to have empathy. That's the most important skill that you can have because you help children see from their point of view. And once, let's face it, once you can, someone sees your point of view, it validates you. It says what I'm feeling, thinking is it, it, they understand me and I'm now connected to you. And I feel like what I'm feeling and thinking is okay. 
It, but it doesn't mean that you give up a limit. It just means that when you see my point of view, then I'm more willing to cooperate. Yeah, we're going to get into the conscious discipline, peaceful um, discipline in a little while. I, I want to, I'd like to ask you because you do it so beautifully in your book. What's the, what's your definition of empathy? I don't think there's a clear understanding. So empathy is, it's different than sympathy. A lot of yeah. people think it's sympathy. But when you're sympathizing with somebody, you're bringing your story in that you're sharing with them. I know exactly how you feel. This is what happened to me. That's an immature version of empathy, okay? Humor, sarcasm, those are all sort of immature sort of ways to. Empathy says, I am going to be present with you, sit with you, feel you, hear you without trying to take trying to change your perspective without trying to feed you information. I'm going to feel every part of you in the energy, but also listen to what you're saying. So I can then reflect it back to you to confirm that's what you're feeling or even go to a deeper level. So I go to a deeper level of saying, well, this is what you really wanted to happen. Mm. You were hoping that this would have happened right? You were hoping that it would have turned out this way, right? So I give them a little bit deeper because it takes practice to do it. At first, you're just kind of reflecting. But if your intention is to try to save them, if your intention is to try to fix them, it will never, you're not doing empathy. No. So empathy, for example, I'll, I'll do another example. I'll try another example here would be um, what you just said, Jenny, you were sharing with us how different sympathy and empathy is. So I'm validating, I guess is the word. I'm validating, I'm I'm, I'm restating what you have said in a way that says, I am listening. I am listening with the intent to hear you, not to provide feedback, not to provide judgment. I'm just listening to understand. And help them see that you do. Yeah. So, so by your reflection, they're going to either go, yeah, which means they're feeling like, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So think of, have you ever like been upset and they go home and you try to tell the person that's closest to you, you know, this is what happened to me today. Now you've sucked it up all day. Right. So you've been yeah. good all day long. You're going it's home to your safe person. Yep. To that safe person <laughs> that you know is going to be there no matter how big your emotion is. So you go home and you tell them and they start saying to you, well, here's what you need to do. You need to do uh, that's terrible. And I told you not to, to, I told you to leave that job a long time ago. So here's what you really need to do, A, B, C, and D. Well, does that help you? Not at all. It, it, no. It's, deflated. it's actually deflating you. And you say, well, you're not listening. <laughs> and really when we say that, we're saying, I need validation. Yes. I need you to really understand from my point of view. Yeah. And the only way you can do that is to reflect it back and say, so for you today, wow, this happened and you were hoping that would have happened. And and gosh, how did that make you feel? And I'm, yeah. Not how did it make you feel? How did you feel? How did that make you feel? Says that that's in charge of you. So, right? Oh, we say, you yeah. Me feel. Think of it that way. Yeah. Bully victim stuff happens because we say, how did your sister make you feel? Well, who's in charge of you now? Oh, how did you feel? Right. Okay. How do you feel? Own your feeling. So how, so you were feeling this and you were feeling that, and it, that makes so much sense to me. 
So that's a lot of times I say that to kids. That makes total sense to me. Well, we're going to, we're going to reflect on that as we head off to break, but stay with us. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the total misunderstanding that peaceful parenting or conscious parenting means kids get to do what they want. (laughs) No, we've got boundaries, but how do we do that in a kind way? We'll be back in a minute. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Our kids today face a world that's different from what we experienced. The pressures they encounter are unique and they need a fresh approach. But fear not, we're here to guide us all towards a brighter future. Join us and schedule Heart Matters Embracing Emotional Health for All and uncover answers and proven strategies that work for our children's sake. It's more than an event. It's a catalyst for change. We delve deep into what being emotionally well truly means. It's more than just being happy or stress-free. It's about developing resilience, empathy, self-awareness, and more. Discover how normalizing emotions and modeling for our children will empower us all to build healthy relationships. You'll have the opportunity to engage with renowned experts in mental health and education as they share their invaluable knowledge and practical insights. But that's not all. We'll provide you with a wealth of resources. Whether you're interested in scheduling an in-person or virtual event, Heart Matters is designed as an interactive session to accommodate the needs of your school or community. Let's shape a future where emotional well-being is prioritized and our children thrive in loving and supportive environments. Discover the answers and act now for our children's sake. Email Lynn at lynnmclaughlin.com to start the conversation. Receive your free proposal and book your date. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Taking the Helm with Lynn McLaughlin. Have a question for Lynn or her guests? Join us on the show at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back from break with Ginny Luther, and we're going to jump into, um, we've had previous guests who have spoken about conscious discipline. Ginny, there's peaceful parenting. What's the difference between the two? Well, peaceful parenting is the name of my business, and it's um, a business based on uh, positive uh, discipline in general, which is there's been many authors around it. Conscious discipline is mindful, but it's also um, it's also developed by Dr. Becky Bailey. It's a specific program that really is the most comprehensive discipline program I've ever seen. It's based on brain information and all of that. So I have was a mastered instructor, uh, retired now, and <clears throat> I um, was able to uh, use that work for her, speak nationally, internationally, blah, blah, blah. And so I use the conscious discipline approach under my peaceful parenting business. Okay. But I so, do lots of different things in my business. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's give an example of uh, a young person who absolutely refuses to go to bed. Absolutely refuses. 
how would you apply your peaceful practicing techniques to that situation as a parent? So first and foremost, the very first step is what? Check my triggers. Am I triggered? Am I upset? I've got to calm myself down because this, because that's what they do. They push your button, right? So you're like a soda machine. They're pushing your button and they know exactly what button to push to trigger you into that upset state because they're asking you to feel what they're feeling and validate their point of view before they're ever willing to listen to your direction. Mm-hmm. Typically, what we do is we say, don't you talk to me like that, young man. That's disrespectful. Now, you know, it's bedtime. We do this every night and it don't start with me. Mm-hmm. So that's typically or sweetheart, you want some you want some ice cream. If I give you some ice cream when you go to bed, you promise you'll go to bed. Oh, uh, yeah. No, those neither of those. Those are external motivators to and, and it, as opposed to helping the child to discipline themselves to make the choice to go to bed. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So first you calm yourself. You see their point of view, which is the empathy. I know it's hard. You were hoping that you could have stayed up and eaten popcorn with daddy and mommy and watched Letterman on TV. We know that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. So, uh, So the next step is then to say, you got some choices. It's time for bed. Not, will you go to bed? Are you ready for bed? Um, Will you please go to bed? You know what time it is. None of the coercive kinds of techniques that we use are going to be helpful to a child in that state when they're ready to defy. They want the world to go their way. That's what they want. That's an important part of leadership is to be somewhat defiant. And, and so we've got to work with the defiance. And so mm-hmm. I say, it's time for bed. Do you want to brush your teeth first? Or do you want to brush bear's teeth first? What's your choice? What's your choice? Now I wait for them to give me the choice. If they're a teenager, it's time to do homework. Turn off the iPad. It's time to do homework. Are you going to start with your math or are you going to start with some English? And there's the choice. What what works best for you? Mm-hmm. Now listen to that. But you the boundary, right? There's the boundary. Right. This is it. Right. Here's well, your I choice. I don't want this. You give yeah. them A or B, they choose C. Mm-hmm. And I say, your choices are English or math. What are you going to start with? Reading or math. Okay. But my reading or math. You can <laughs> do it. You can choose. I know you can choose. So I do that with little kids, especially when they're crossing their arms and they get their face and they're looking right at you. And I'm like, you're thinking, I know you're thinking about the choice you're going to make. It's hard, but you're almost there. That positive reinforcement. Yeah. Then I'm encouraging the whole way. So the encouragement of them taking ownership by making a choice then feeds their sense of I, which they need to develop and says, I am choosing. So as soon as they choose, instead of good job, thank you, that makes mommy happy. I would say, you did it. That was a hard choice and you made it. Way to go. Boom, high five them. And then in in their mind, it's I did it. I chose. I love the way you did just modeled that for us. Thank you so much. I made it very clear. 
Well, good. And that, and that yeah. is the point because defiant children don't want to do your agenda. Nope. It's all theirs. And when it's they have control, agenda. two choices still gives them control. Exactly. It's like if you can envision the boundaries important, it's time to not would you, you're not asking, you're commanding. It's time to. And then within that boundary, it's like a like at a playground, you see the fence and the fence is there. And there's all kinds of options of what you can play within that fence. But beyond the fence, it's not safe. So it's the same kind of thing that you're doing with it's time for bed, which is a safety issue. It's your job to to keep them safe. And getting a good sleep is an important part of safety, their physical safety. And so you don't need to explain that. It's just it's time for bed. But within it, what playground equipment can they get on? You know, what choices do they have? You want to go pee first or you want to do your teeth first? That kind of thing. And you can have that planned out in advance because you know what's coming tonight. You start it, it becomes easier and easier and easier. Two positive choices. It's not a positive choice and a negative choice. It's not, you need to brush your teeth now or else I'm not going to read a story. What's your choice? Yeah. That's not, that's not, that's called the consequence, which is another thing, but uh, yeah, no, you want to set them up to take ownership. Well, that was a good segue into how we, if, if we always have control, then we're losing our ability to connect with our children, which you found a way to do with Bart over and over and over again, by, by doing exactly what you just did there. Peaceful parenting, but with boundaries. <laughs> right. Peaceful parenting to me, I named that business is because it's really about us first. So is conscious discipline, but it's about me first. My my peaceful state is going to dictate how others perceive me, how others want to be with me, how other how cooperative my children are going to be with me. So it was working on the peaceful state, which, by the way, is the hardest thing to do because you really have to look a lot at your past to know what's getting in the way of you being that state with your child. Usually you're triggered into a past experience. So if your child's whining and you can't stand whining, it's because something happened around whining with you. You have a judgment about it because somebody judged you. And so until you, that's why when a child brings it to you, it's an opportunity to heal yourself because when you change how you respond to it, you're also healing yourself. Comes down to that inner talk, right? How we talk to ourselves is how we project and how we speak with other people, what they see in us, right? Correct. So that's really interesting what you just said, because if we can identify the things that, uh, what's the word I want, that really uh, rot our gut in terms of our children's behavior, then that's a signal for us to say, hey, what's that all about? And And it might not come up right away. Sometimes it'll come up right away. I have some stories in the book that are like, whoa, okay, that's what that was. But you, it, if you don't identify that, that trigger, because you're going to get triggered. It doesn't matter what it is. I still get triggered driving to this day. It's really a hard thing for me. It's not about preventing the triggers. It's about managing the trigger. Mm-hmm. So when the trigger comes, it's like, okay, there's the trigger. I just got upset. I'm going to take some deep breaths. I'm going to calm myself down. I wonder what that was all about. So be curious about it versus I just took this course with Ginny Luther and I can't even breathe when the when somebody cuts me off. What's the matter with me? Do you see the difference? Yes, absolutely. Because you're going to continue to get upset. When you can accept it, it will flow through you. When you resist it, it sticks with you. 
And even if you can't identify what happened, you can still, as you, as you said, be aware, this is a trigger. I've got to do something about this now. Right. It's a trigger. I wonder what it's about, you know, and that's bar triggered me constantly, constantly. And I had to continue. I mean, I was, I had a wooden spoon in front of his face, threatening his life. And that was the epiphany for me. It was like, what am I doing? What What am I doing? You know, and that was the moment I said, this isn't just about him. This is not just about him. This is about me. And that was when I started my journey. And it's a very powerful journey. Oh, I encourage everyone to read your book, Ginny. Yeah, I'm excited. All right, Ginny, I think this is the perfect time to talk about, uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing one of the stories from your book, something that, you know, you just talked about an epiphany, a moment where you were holding up the spoon, the wooden spoon, where you said, no, this has to stop. But where you realized that by constantly wanting to take control, you were using your ability to connect with Bart. Yeah, I think one of the times I first completely let go of control and went to connection, which means I didn't give up my limit, but I went to more of a connected intention versus a control intention was um, in, in the story called Bye Bye Binky. And one of the ways that Bart used to regulate was through his pacifier. And um, I, I just thought, you know, well, he's a kid, he's a little kid. He needs this. Well, I go to the doctor. The doctor says, you got to get rid of that thing when he was two and a half. And this was at the peak of his tantrums, peak of like major 45 minute thrashing, violent tantrums in my house. So I said, okay, I'm going to take the binky away. So binky goes and, um, I just take it away and I say, no more binky. Well, the tantrums, you know, intensified exponentially. And I, after about three days, I said, okay, I'm realizing that this binky helps him to calm down. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know all the information I know today. So this is obviously something that he needs to calm himself down. So I made a rule around it. And I said, if you're going to use your binky, you must go up to your room and use it. So if you feel like you need it, just go up to your room. Cause he was defying naps at that time too. And I thought, well, this is twofold. Maybe he'll take a nap. And it, he did sometimes, but he'd use it and then he'd come back down and he'd go back up and he'd come back down. So some, so I had to take this thing away when he was like, like when he was four. So I said, okay, Bart. He said, mommy, I think I, I said, I'm going to leave it up to him because I gave it back to him. I said, this is no way I can't take this away from him. It's a huge power struggle. So when he was four, he said to me, mommy, I think I want to get rid of my binky. And I said, Great. So I took the binky, I threw it in the garbage. I said, that's that. And we put it in the garbage. And that night he started whining and complaining and throwing a tantrum and saying, I want my binky back. And I said, you said you're going to throw it. He was, he says, I'm going to wait till I'm five. So, cause he found one. I had thrown all the binkies away and somehow he found some one in a corner. So then two, three weeks later, he's getting peer pressure at, 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 at the, the sitters. And that's where he's getting peer pressure. You still have a bean, you still have a pacifier. So anyway, finally, he says, I'm ready to give up my binky again. I said, okay, instead of trying to control it, I said to him, this time you get to throw it away. And when you're ready to throw it away, we're going to have a party. Mm -hmm. We're going to dance. We're going to celebrate. And so he did. And I'm like, you did it. You did it, Bart. Way to go. 
he gets up to the, to, to bed, right? And he goes, mommy, I want my binky back. I said, I know it's so hard to do hard things. And that was such a hard thing for you to do. I said, I'm going to lay with you tonight. And so I laid down and he went to sleep and that was it. Oh, never, been, never asked for the binky, never anything. But I shifted from, I'm going to take control to, nope, this is yours to handle. And I'm just going to encourage you. And did you have that planned out? Like from the, once you realized it wasn't working, that taking control, okay, how we, you just kind of ended up figuring it out as you went step-by-step. Step. I just, yeah, you, you you start giving up all these, everything that's not working, sticker charts, star charts, whatever the manipulative, coercive things I was doing was not working. I had to do something and it was really kind of trial and error. I said, I'm going to leave it up to you. You do it. So that was my, another epiphany, if you will. Right. Yeah. Is yeah. to say, this is not mine to handle. This is his to handle. He's that kid. You know, it's he a, needs yeah. to handle hard things and he wants to. He does not want me to save him. He does not want me to punish him. He wants to handle these things. Well, it's the same sense of control that we want as adults. Exactly. exactly. One-year-olds want control. Two-year-olds want control, whatever control we can give them in they a want safe safety. way. Right. They in want safety. And they also want, they need attachment, little ones do. Yeah. If we don't attach in their upset states, that's when it goes haywire. That's when it goes haywire in terms of self-regulation for children. If we don't connect with them in their upset states. So I, I just want to, I'm thinking about a time when timeouts were the thing to do, right? Timeouts. And, you know, people still say calming chairs. They're with you. They take the time. Or you model now, I am really upset. I'm going to go sit over here for a little while, but I'll come back and talk to you in a moment. What's your take on on that whole procedure of timeouts? I think there's some, well, timeout there's some pros was and some cons. The timeout was originally designed to help a child take the time to calm themselves. Mm -hmm. Only there was no structure around it. Children need structure. They need visuals. They need guidance. And so to say, go over there and calm yourself down to a child who's seeking attachment in their upset state, because that's what they're supposed to do is attach with you so that you can help them make sense of their world goes to a corner. They feel abandoned. And so then they either get worse or they're asking to come out. They're saying, can I come out now? Can I come out now? They're not actually regulating. I mean, I think the intention was it to be regulated. So now we have calming corners, safe places and all of that. Mm -hmm. The only program that I have ever seen that does this exceptionally well is conscious discipline, where they actually have a beginning and an end. So it's a conscious process for a child to go from an upset state to a calm state so that they can come out and solve the problem. Because uh -huh. you don't want the to use the calming corner as a way out of taking responsibility for whatever conflict occurred. Very helpful. Thank you. All right. We're going to head off for another break, but wow, Jimmy, Jenny, we just have so much more to talk about. I, I want to get into labeling and how our kids carry that with them. Let's get into actual consequences because yes, sometimes we need to give consequences to our children. We're going to talk about that and so much more when we come back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. 
Our children are growing up in a world that is more complex than ever. It's time to start thinking proactively. Meet Zerko and the children who glow in the color they are feeling because they haven't learned to control their emotions yet. In the Power of Thought Children's series, we're not only teaching children about emotional vocabulary, but how to recognize how they are feeling and what they can do about it. We live on an imaginary planet called Tezra, where every character is named after a crystal. Each of the five books in the series takes children into a situation they can relate to, but teaches problem-solving skills and evidence-based strategies they can use for life. This series was developed in collaboration with clinicians, educators, parents, and guardians, and it's the winner of the Mom's Choice Award. Check it out at lynnmclaughlin.com under the Books tab. A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Taking the Helm with Lynn McLaughlin. Have a question for Lynn or her guests? Join us on the show at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Now, back to the show. We are back with Ginny Luther. And just before the break, we talked about, uh, you know, the old time out thing and how that's not really working anymore. And Ginny shared some um, exceptional advice on what we should be thinking of in lieu of that today. Jenny, I want to get into now uh, labeling and how, you know, and not intentionally, but very often we say things and kids walk away with that and they're taking that in as part of their being as they carry it with them. Right. So children, whatever we say to children becomes their inner speech. Now that's hugely impactful. Mm-hmm. So take yourself off the guilt, guilt pedestal and 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 take a deep breath because all your inner speech came from someone too and it's an evolutionary process. So if your in if your speech to them is oh you're so smart, oh what a smart kid and that constantly comes back to children. Have you ever noticed really smart kids have a really hard time making mistakes? Oh they become perfectionists. They become perfectionists because they believe that if, when they're not smart, then some, they've lost a sense of self. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Absolutely. So they've lost their self because their self identification is that I'm smart. And so you see elite acting children, they're demanding. There's all kinds of things that happen because that's part of being smart is that the world always has to go my way. And I am always right. Mm. That's not because they're they're selfish. It's because they identify with this label. And I remember this happened with Bart. He was very precocious. And people would say that around him all the time, how smart he is. Even if you're on the phone, you'd be on the phone saying, I know he's so smart and the teachers and it's really hard for the blah, blah, blah. He hears all that and he identified himself. And I saw him once using that. And I also, when he was making mistakes, I said, you know, what do you think smart means to you? What does that mean about you? He says, well, that's what I am. I said, no, that's not what you are. That's your gift. Ah. That's a gift that you can use to help other people, but that is not all that you are. That's just one piece of who you are. You're kind, you're compassionate, you're generous, you're defiant sometimes. <laughs> Those are all part of who you are. 
So I, I, I tried to tell him smart is not who you are because here's the deal. You're not going to be right all the time and you are going to make mistakes in your life. And if you think smart is who you are, then you've defined yourself to be that person. You, you just, what an aha moment there, because when I think of labeling, I think of the negative labels. Well, what did you do that for? That's not the way I raised you, those kinds of things. I, I never really thought before about, wow, you're smart. Oh my gosh, look how talented you are artistically could be taken. Kids could take that in a way where they define themselves so that I have to be smart because that's who I am. And I, I have to meet this expectation. And it's a judgment. Yeah. So instead of describing their behavior, that's helpful. We judge their behavior. So you say that about a, a, a girl, it's, kids start focusing on their clothes as being important because when they come into school and they're four, they're going, you got such pretty shoes. Now you're focused on their shoes. So shoes become valuable to them. So pretty looking shoes are important for me to have. Absolutely. Oh, oh boy. They become to identify themselves with their cuteness or their beauty or their clothes or whatever it is because of the way people have interacted with them. It's mm -hmm. a lot of people don't pay attention to it, but it's really important because my, how I interact with a child really has an impact on how they interact with themselves on how they see themselves. Well, that brings me to another question. And um, you shared this term. I've never heard this term before. Shoulding when we should children with that judgment piece, you should have done this. You should have done that pretty detrimental. Have you ever had someone say you should, should have done it that way? Have oh, you ever had oh, still happens. <laughs> so, so what's your first thought? Uh, I get defensive. Why do you think you get defensive? Because uh, I've, I've already decided that, yeah, I know I shouldn't have done it that way because it didn't go well, but I don't need you to tell me that. Right. Because there's yeah. really nothing you can do. Right. Mm. So my mother used to should me all the time. And so I, I, there was nothing I could do. Like it's already happened. So how is telling me I should have done something helping me to solve the problem right now was not helpful at all. The only thing I did was get very, very defensive. Over the years, I shifted that by by seeing it differently with my mom. But, but, but the bottom line is, shooting sets a child up to be defensive. So if you already have a defiant child, you, mm -hmm. you're just pushing the power struggle button in that child. You're, put, you're literally pushing it. They're going to throw themselves on the floor or they're going to say, well, you're just a dummy. And now you're going to get into this back and forth power struggle and all power struggles end in abuse. Mm. You either get abused by your child or your child gets abused by you emotionally mm -hmm. or physically. And that's what happens. It starts with that should. And the should is the base of should is judgment. It's just judgment. How do we flip that, Ginny, from the shooting to a conversation that make, helps us connect to our child? Well, it depends if you're giving a command or just a comment. So that's that it depends on the situation. But the, in general, you're going to state what you want them to do and give them a couple of choices, right? They run out the door to the car and you shouldn't be running out. You know the rules. That's not safe. How does that help the child to know what to do? So often when we're setting limits with children, we focus on what we don't want. And when you're shooting, you're focusing on the behavior that you really don't want. Well, the brain is not set up to stay focused on that. In other words, you don't, you don't move to the highest levels of problem solving when you're focused on what you don't want. You can't problem solve when you're focused on what you don't want. 
So problem solving requires that we provide a vision of what to do. So if I said to you, I came on the show and said, you know, you shouldn't talk like that on this show. How's that helpful? As opposed <laughs> to say, you know, if you ask me questions about this, I think I can really be helpful to meet your need. Do you hear the difference? Absolutely. So focus on what I want in my relationship with you versus what I don't want. So a child, here's a good, simple example. A child's jumping on the couch. You don't want the child to jump on the couch because obviously of the, of the um, safety issues, whether it's your furniture or whether the child itself. So what, what do we typically say? We go in there and go, don't jump on the couch. Now, when you're giving a command and you say, don't do this, all the child visualizes is images. Children don't have inner speech. They're not talking, having a conversation in their mind. So they just picture images when you're talking to them and they talk images in their head. Mm. That's why four-year-olds just continuously talk. They mm. continuously talk while they're playing and it's everything they're visualizing in their brain. And they can say some of the darndest things. Yes. So it's they don't have impulse control. They're not, con- they're not watching themselves talk and think. And so they just do the images. And so when you say, don't jump on the couch, what do they image? What's the image? Jumping on the couch. Yeah. Yeah. Because they can't, yeah. pro- they can't project, they can't plan and they don't reflect. So when you say don't stand on the couch, they're visualizing standing on the couch or jumping on the couch. So then they get a smile on their face, right? They think it's a game. Mm-hmm. So now it's, you're <laughs> saying, don't give me that. What did I say? We don't jump on the couch. And then we get really mad and they just keep jumping as opposed to sit down on the couch so I can keep you safe. Jump on the floor over here. You may not jump on the couch. You're giving them direction on what to do that they can understand. Yes. You got to show them a picture of what to do. Very often when I'm in schools and with little ones, walk down the hall, just like this. And then I show them exactly how to walk and they imitate me (laughs) as opposed to, Walk your feet, walk your feet. No running, run, no running, no running. Oh. This like, la, la, la. They're not even listening to you. So listening is a big deal with what I teach. Um, because so often, like I was at a house last night, children, we expect that they're going to listen to what we say. But if we're screaming across the house, we are missing the boat on, on understanding whether they have heard us or not. Mm-hmm. So this happens a lot because our attention's it's 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 attention. So in order to have a contract with somebody in a conversation or a request, you must have eye contact so that you know that person's listening to you. If you're screaming across the house and your child's playing with the iPad in the living room and you can't even see them and you're saying, it's time for dinner. They're not listening to you because you haven't established the contract of listening with them, which is to go up to them and make eye contact and tell them it's time for dinner. Do you want to serve yourself or do you want me to serve you? So you you give them that lead. Last night I was at a house. The kids are crushing the, the parents, like slamming into them when they want to hug, crying and screaming. And I'm like, is it okay with you that they scream at you to pick them up? And they say, well, we don't want them to. They yell a lot. I said, because you, you're you saying that that's how they, you, they get your attention. They're, that's how you're responding to that. 
Yeah. Right. You're reinforcing yeah. it by, mm-hmm. by picking them up when they're screaming at you. I said, what you want to do is that four-step process. Have them come and tap you or put their hand on your shoulder, call your name, and wait for you to look. And once they look and you have eye contact, they can ask you or tell what they want from you. And so we practiced that last night. By the time I left, the parents were like, this is this is a miracle stuff. It's a miracle. I said, no, you're just teaching them what you want them to do. So you're you're teaching them how you want them to treat you. That's your job to teach them. They don't know they're not born knowing. There's so much in this conversation, Jenny, that because we we do what we know, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> we do what we know. Oh my goodness. I want I want to move into consequences. So peaceful okay. parenting, conscious parenting. Consequences still happen. You know, we can be kind we, and we can be firm. What does it look like? Well, first of all, there's there's a, and a negative intention about the word consequences. A lot of people refer to consequences as, as, as the end game. I've tried everything. I've been nice. I've been good. So now there's going to be a consequence, which really says now there's going to be a punishment. You're going to pay for what you've just done because I've been nice and I'm I'm done with nice, right? That's not a true consequences. Consequences happen all the time. The most powerful consequences are natural. Natural, yeah. If you go out the door and you forget your umbrella and it pours, the natural consequence of that is you're going to have to sit in your car till it lightens up or you're going to have to run in it and get wet. The consequence of you forgetting produces a feeling of you of like, oh, darn it. Mm. I knew I should have brought my umbrella. It's that feeling of disappointment that you have that actually teaches and motivates you to want to change your behavior next time. To to give a real simple one is when you say you're going to go to a party and only drink two glasses of wine, but oh, well, you choose to drink three or four and the next morning you're throwing up in the toilet saying, I'm never going to do this again, right? And then you repeat it unless you allow yourself to feel the feeling with consciousness to say, I don't like throwing up. So therefore I am not going to drink another glass of wine. Very concrete. Yeah, absolutely. Very concrete example. Mm -hmm. And so with children, we want to set it up as natural as possible. But what a lot of people do, a lot of parents do, is they either save their children from feeling the disappointment or they assign a feeling to a child they should be feeling worse than they do And that sets up the child to not take responsibility. It's hard to watch your child feel disappointed. It's the most powerful consequence for building resiliency. Mm -hmm. And that comes in many, I mean, you apply that to all the different contexts of life. Play before they, you know, when they're little, little people and we got to get back to play. (laughs) We, We all know that that's how kids learn what they like, what they don't like the natural consequences of this or that experimenting in the mud in the what, whatever it's going to be and let them go play in the puddle. And if they get a little cut or a little nick or whatever, that's part of that experience. It's part of the experience. And we have to be willing to take those risks. Kids, you're not a bad parent because your child fails. You just aren't, you're actually building resiliency. Mm -hmm. Now you don't want to throw failure on them, but when there's an opportunity for them to take the risk and then experience the consequence, it's the feeling they have about their choice that leads them and motivates them to want to change the behavior. Now, the one thing that's important to know 
is children under the age of six or so, the consequence mostly is going to be natural because you've got to teach. And the natural consequence to a child who hits another child is that you've got to teach them how to use their words. If they don't know the skill, like you and I would know the skill to remember the umbrella, but if a child doesn't know the skill, okay, then what happens is they, you're asking, it's we like, if I said for you to perform successful heart surgery on my dog tomorrow, I'll give you a hundred dollars or I'll give you a thousand, hundred thousand dollars. There's nothing in the world that I can threaten you with or reward you with that's going to change that. That's going to make you be able to have that skill. You've got to be taught that skill once they know the skill. So young children don't know the skills, which is why we're constantly redirecting and showing them what to do and showing them what that's the consequences. Show them what to do, show them what to do, show them what to do. 2,000 times in context before it automatically gets wired in their brain, which can require a lot of patience on a parent's part. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Once they get about six, seven or eight, they're like, now you can prevent, you can start to you can start to implement some logical consequences. You know, you have a choice. You know, you can put your iPad away now and play with it later after dinner, or you can defy me and keep your iPad right now. I will take the iPad away and you will not get it till tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So when we let our kids, when we let our kids, when our kids take chances, it's not always consequences in the end. There's celebrations that come with that too. Things that go well, things that they, I guess, I guess I'm taking the negative connotation of the word. There's not a negative connotation. So if you study hard for a test and you get an A, guess what? That's a consequence you're saying as opposed to getting the A says, I better study like that if I want to feel that good again. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Yes, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, Ginny, uh, we need to wrap up. We're coming to the end of the hour. Do you have any closing comments for us? Well, I, I I would say if I was going to close a comment is be patient with yourself. Um, In starting some of this, it's not an automatic fix. It's something just allow yourself to, to fail and make mistakes and notice instead of judge yourself is to say, okay, oops, I'm going to try again. Oops. I'm going to try again with this connection. So I would say it's a practice. And if you want to really get into it, go to consciousdiscipline.com. If you want you want to experience it through my book, Blue Star Grit. You can do that. And um, I do consults, all of that. And that's on JennyLuther.com. But bottom line is how you treat yourself is how you treat others. So if you're really hard on yourself, you're also going to be hard on other people and your children. So start with yourself first. Thank you. Exceptional closing comments. You're so welcome. And thank you for asking me. Let's check our compass and learn what we need to as we empower our children to face the ups and downs of life, which will surely come. Have a safe and healthy week. Thanks for tuning into today's episode of Taking the Helm. We hope that Lynn and her guests have provided valuable insights on how to create a safe emotional space for your children that empowers them to be their best selves. Until we talk again, have a wonderful week.